Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm speaking to you live today from San Francisco. I'm in Scott Snibby's living room, and we are hanging out today to talk a little bit about art, design, uh, technology, Buddhist practice, and all of the ways that those things can come together in interesting and bizarre ways. So thank you, Scott, for, for being on the show and for uh, taking the, the time to speak to the Buddhist Geeks. My pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the show since the first day. Yeah, thank you. And when I heard that, I was um, really delighted and, and also happy that uh, our mutual friend, John Simon, connected mm -hmm. us. So um, all of this is really, really good timing. So I wanted to start by asking you a bit about your background, um, kind of where have you come from. And uh, in terms of two strands in particular, on the one hand, you are an interactive media designer, uh, you're an entrepreneur, um, you're a researcher, you do a lot of things in that space. The first um, piece of work that I've picked up of yours was um, Bjork's Biophilia, mm -hmm. uh, that full-length uh, app. Um, and for those that don't know about it, uh, this was what, like, the first time that a, an album and art kind of app had ever been kind of combined or created in mm -hmm. that form? Yeah, it was, the, it was the first time someone released an album as an app, uh, like an interactive experience uh, beneath your fingertips. That's really cool. And it's, um, for those that haven't seen it, it's an amazing experience. It's, it's not like just listening to an album and it's not just like going into a visual app. It really is this amazing combination. And when I first held it, I thought, oh, wow, this is definitely like the direction of the future of, of music and art uh, to see these things coming together. So um, amazing uh, work on that front. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. A lot. And then you've done all kinds of other stuff. I won't even try to, to mention it all. One, one piece that I really wanted to see, uh, Form and Emptiness. This is a, a piece that you did in 2000, I think? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was called Emptiness is Form. That's when, okay. every, when screensavers were really big, remember, like flying toasters and things like that. <laughs> so um, this friend of mine, James Buckhouse, um, organized a show 
on a screensaver as art, and he invited a bunch of artists working with technology. And I created this screensaver that is just a field of stars, like just dots in a grid. And it super, super slowly, slowly, slowly coalesces into this outline of a Buddha, Buddha form. Um, but it's very, very slow. You can really sit there and um, stare at it for a while. And it's been one of the goals of, of my artwork is to kind of secretly induce a kind of meditative state to encourage people towards like concentration and long-term engagement and to just um, be there with their mind and then doing one thing for, you know, more than seven seconds, <laughs> ideally a lot longer. Okay. Interesting. How did you get into the, into the art direction or trajectory? Yeah. Uh, maybe you could bring us. So, to so I'm one of these people that was just from the earliest moments, I knew I exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And a lot of it was because of my parents. My parents were both um, artists uh, and they were working with plastics. So they were, you know, technological artists. There's that line from The Graduate, you know, it was like, I have one word for you, son, plastics. But that was, my parents told me that was really how people felt. Like not just kind of square people like you saw in The Graduate, but the actual young people like them who saw it as like an art form um, and they were in New York and part of the Warhol art scene. And I've got a lot of good stories they told me that may or may not be true <laughs> about, about Warhol parties and things like that, because there were a lot of drugs involved, too. But um, we were raised basically with two main things, um, completely artistic environment. You know, we had no media, no television. But what we had was two shops, a wood shop and a plastic shop. And... Art was really our religion for the most part. It was it was seen as this, the, it was what you did with your your life, you know, all day long. And if we had an art project, we were working on art projects of our own, like the, my brother and sister, and my mom and my dad. We were working on art projects of our own for um, since since as early as I can remember. And we were Christian scientists which is a really, really weird religion that not that many people know about and very few people are members of, um, which I really enjoyed as a kid. And it's a, it's a religion that has a very uh, extreme view, uh, which actually maps to one of the, the Buddhist philosophical schools, Tibetan Buddhist philosophical schools. Hmm. Um, in Christian science, you believe that all there is in the universe is mind uh, and that matter is actually like a shadow or reflection, a projection of it. And then in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this um, Chittamani school, the mind-only school of Tibetan Buddhism, right. which actually believes the same thing. So one side effect of that is Christian scientists don't believe you can, um, they don't believe you can get sick unless there's some kind of like a spiritual malady, like the material world isn't, like you're not going to get sick and you're not going to get hurt if you have the right state of mind. Mm. So our parents weren't afraid that we would hurt ourselves in the shop. So they, <laughs> they taught us how to use table saws and band saws. I was like five years old, like barely able to see onto the shelf, you know, late at night. Wow. Um, so we were raised, we were just raised with that, that combination of this very interesting spirituality that was super, super empowering and non-material and um, art as a kind of religion uh, with an emphasis on abstract art and technological art. Mm. So I was just raised to think that's what you do with your life. And I, and I saw school as a kind of secondary thing that I really enjoyed and I was good at. And I also had a personal kind of passion for technology. Like I found this book on invention that, that my, on inventors that my dad had, a college textbook that I must've read like eight times when I was a, a kid. 
So just from the early stage, I wanted to be some combination of a, um, an artist and an inventor. And that's what I ended up being. Um, I don't know if you want to hear how it actually happened when I was an adult. Maybe that's more important. Uh, I hope we can get into some of it. Um, But I'm also curious. I can see already why maybe some of the Tibetan Buddhist stuff would be relevant given given the Christian science science background. But did you get into that later on, like after you'd already kind of been full steam ahead with the art stuff? Oh, yeah. Well, so I actually... Because I guess I saw how hard it was for my parents to be artists. I actually never wanted to be a professional artist. I I saw it more as like a hobby for myself, like just almost like a form of meditation, actually. Like this thing you do every day and it has a positive effect on your mind and like a side effect of creating some um, sometimes beautiful things. So what happened was in college, I studied computer science and art and film and... um, I just, I was raised to be very like rebellious and, and to think for myself. And I really, really hated studying computer science, but I knew I needed to know it down to the ground, like down to the silicon to do what I wanted to do with my life, which was to use like computers as a medium. When I was 10 years old, I saw Apple II computers in a middle school in a Pacific Grove. And I knew that's what I want to do with my life. I want to use computers to create interactive graphics. And then I did a lot my, when I was young, you know, as, as a teenager, and I had a mentor. My, my best friend's dad was Gary Kildall, who was an incredible um, entrepreneur. He was like the Bill Gates of the 70s. Um, so I just went, went through my education, and what I would do to stay sane was every time I had a really boring assignment, like write a compiler or something like that, I would always make an abstract interactive test program. So I would kind of take the, the immaterial like the things you can't see about a computer program, like what's happening while it's running and visualize it and color and form almost like a Kandinsky painting that moves. I wish I had these programs. It'd be cool to show now. Mm. Um, so that's how I kind of got through it. But, but it was really like a, a revelation that there's something really beautiful in this boring assignment that I can extract. And then it took ages and ages for me to figure out that that was like quote art. Like for me, it was just like a way of staying healthy um, but I started to make these programs and my advisors in college said like, w- like once my advisor called it a useless, he's like, what's, what's, what's the point of this? He said, you know, 2d is a solved problem. He said to me once, cause I made this 2d animation program, which was my first work of art actually called motion phone. And, um, uh, you know, my advisor said to me, 2d is a solved problem. So then I started defensively calling my work like useless programs. You know, he's like, what are you working on? I was like, oh, just some useless programs. <laughs> and I still say that sometimes. It's kind of like a more of a synonym for art, I guess, or technological art. Um, but the work, it was really an accident that my work got recognized as art. I showed the work at a technological conference called SIGGRAPH, more like an experiment, just right. to see how people would react. There's this thing called Motion Phone that was a, an abstract communication program. And um, then some curators saw it and, and invited me to shows. And so it ended up being a long, long path, like 15 years of shows and things like that. But um, what I really wanted to do with my life was to release interactivity into the world as um, uh, the way musicians can release a song or filmmakers can release a movie or writers can release a book. There's no way to release 
interactivity, you know, programs as art into the world. Um, so they were in galleries and museums, but I was uncomfortable with that because it's kind of elitist and that you always reach the same. Like you go to some weird town in South Korea and all the same people are there like for these shows. It's just the same people all over the world. Yes. So, um, so then when the App Store opened up, that was when I felt, oh, finally there's a, a vehicle. Yes. Um, and the then, hardware, the enabling hardware was there. Yeah, yeah. And, and more important, no, there's no gatekeeper. So you no longer had to ask someone's permission to... Uh, to publish your work so so then i started publishing it and what's it been like um kind of shifting from i guess showing your art and the interactive pieces to like a really niche audience to like putting it out there in the world and and more people touching it and seeing oh, it's, it it's so satisfying because then there's like no preconception and and no um uh, no set culture that's defining what your work is. Because I released, when the iPad came out, I released these three apps called Gravelux, Bubble Harp, and Antigraph, which were all very strange programs. One for like drawing with stars, another one for creating music out of like bubbles, and the other one, a drawing program with ants. And they all got into the top 10. Like one of them went to the very top of the whole app store. Apple was really good at promoting like very creative uses of the app the iPad in the beginning. And um, what I loved is that people were naturally, like ordinary people were seeing way more the deeper purpose of the apps than like curators were, because curators would relate it to like art history and, and you know intellectual ideas, which, which was part of what I made those pieces. But ordinary people would write reviews and say, oh, you know, I came home from work, I was really upset. And then I used this program for half an hour and I felt so good, you know. Mm. And then another person would write, oh, I, I brought this program to school and I did a report and for the first time I got an A in my physics class, you know. Mm. So that's the kind of things I was looking to do with my art is to actually open up people's minds. Like, because I was raised with such an open mind, like crazy parents, every all the weirdest and ideas and, and greatest culture. But most people don't get exposed to that and, and so they have to be like guided into it through some other avenue. So that's what... That's what was really satisfying about releasing work. And then it led to some more like professional collaborations like with Bjork and Philip Glass and people like that. Okay, that's, that's, how, that's how it kind of uh, unfolded. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to go back to something you said sure. that I thought was kind of interesting, that it took you a while to realize that what you were doing was art. And uh, I'm sort of relating that in some sense to also to meditation. You know, it's like sometimes yeah. meditation seems to have this particular form as yeah. does art and then somehow we find our way into a new form and at the first it doesn't actually seem like it fits with the old conceptions yeah. and yet the problem isn't the new thing it's the old conceptions did you have to go through a process where those conceptions had to kind of fall away or what was the in terms of like meditation in terms in terms of i'm, I'm using meditation oh, i guess art. as an analogy yeah. but but i mean you can see where the parallels might be already yeah well you know, the thing is when you, it's just so amazing the way like we all grow up in a unique culture of our family and you're just exposed to like um, inalienable truths that are no such thing, you know. So, so yeah, I guess I just had an idea that art was something, you know, that you put on a pedestal and in, and in a gallery and then um, these things you did on your own was just... It was more like a kind of med. It was more a personal thing. It was just, it was more like daily activity, like 
the way you do exercise or something like that. Like that's the way I was raised is that for the most part, art was that. It wasn't I that see. important to go and show it or sell it or something like that, even though my, my parents did do that. But it was more like a daily activity to keep your mind healthy, which is exactly what meditation is. So like a practice too. Yeah. And the two things have really intertwined in my life because also like I was born to, to, with a huge passion for everything spiritual, like so, so interested in, and positive about every religion, every form of spirituality. And you know, only later did I realize, like, I really was meditating when I was a kid. Like, I used to be, I used to get kind of upset when my, my brother, I'm the oldest, you know, my brother and sister always would let, we had a huge house and they would always want to sleep in my room with me. I'm like, no, 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 no. You know, I need time to myself. And I would really need, like, a good hour alone or more every day to do nothing. Like, even as a little kid, I just, just to sit, like, out in the wilderness or, you know, in the forest or in my room like it was so essential to my mental health and i think later i realized like that's just that's meditation you know it's no big deal but just to sit and be with your own mind and get mm. to know yourself a little bit better mm. um and then also drawing you know drawing in particular i think is one of the most powerful kind of forms of meditation um and that before i discovered buddhism i had to draw every day or i would just go crazy you know i had to spend like half an hour an hour every day drawing and it brought a lot of peace of mind mm. i'm curious you know um this is getting maybe jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit but but you're already kind of talking about it a bit like the relationship between you know creativity and you know bringing forms into the world and then this other movement of just like relaxing and being yeah sounds it sounds almost like the way you're describing it that you almost had to have that grounding force of just drawing or just being you know, with such a creative um, kind of uh, output going. Yeah, well, you know, this is a, I give a lot of lectures and it's one of the questions so many people ask, which is where do your ideas come from, you know, which is kind of related to what you're saying. And I think that like the creativity and the, the spiritual are so deeply intertwined because um, I think, and there's all these arguments about it too from technology, because this is like the one thing that can't really get computers to do is to, to be like creative. Because there's this, um, Douglas Hofstadter is this great writer who writes about like intelligence and creativity and machines. And he says like, that's the fundamental barrier is like creativity involves jumping outside of a system. <laughs> like you have to get, jump a little bit outside of a set of rules to be, creative so i think in a lot of ways like when you open yourself to like new ideas you're you're reaching that like deeper part of yourself like you might in buddhism you might call it like this clear light like this this um infinite source of like wisdom and energy and you know positivity and you know they even say like when you do this meditation on like you know, the subtle form of consciousness that um even like the worst things in life are beautiful. Like even, even like murders and wars, like when you look at their ultimate, ultimate essence, there's like the beauty of our minds and consciousness underlying them and then getting wrinkled into this sort of ugly form uh, on the surface. So, so it's kind of a deep quite when people ask that and, you know, it gets a little, a little sappy for some people who aren't, don't have like a spiritual <laughs> inclination, but 
that's the answer is like the two are so deeply interconnected. And, and I think when people don't have access to creativity, it's, it's just because they don't have access to themselves. They're, they've lost access to their, the subtler parts of their consciousness, which you can just reach by spending some time, quiet time alone, you know, out in nature or something. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, it's such an interesting point, you know, for, for those people that have kind of discovered that, but for those that haven't, it seems like there's an idea that to be creative, one has to like do something more or better or yeah. be smarter or, yeah. you know, kind of like make this heroic effort to, yeah. to bring something into the world. And, yeah. and then it seems like you can get kind of caught yeah. can just completely caught in yeah. that. It's also good to remember, like there's no new ideas. Like a lot of my heroes say this, like John Maida, who's a great digital artist and Richard Gere, like someone was, you know, asking about Chicago, like, Oh, this is such an original play, like combining all these new things. And he's it's like, it's just the same story, like over and over again with humanity and people, just the, just the same thing told in, in a different way. So, and Steve Jobs too, you know, he once asked him, why are you so much more creative than Bill Gates, you know? And he said, it has nothing to do with me, you know, which I mean, for, which for a pretty like egotistic person, that's like, he's really being honest, right? Um, he said, it's just because of the experiences I had, you know, I just... You know, I lived on an ashram. I, I, I know, instead of going to college, I just audited all these crazy classes and typography classes. I took a bunch of drugs. You know, I meditated. Um, I like spent a lot of time in Macy's looking at um, Cuisinart's, <laughs> you know, and that's how I came up with my ideas. They just, you know, and then you relax and go for walks up on the hills in Stanford and it all kind of gets mushed together and mm. comes out with a, a, a Mac. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really, God, such a vital point that there is nothing new in, in some way that there's just new, maybe new connections oh, or, yeah. or new kind oh, yeah. of seeing how things relate. Yeah. But yeah, you know what I've realized having a kid, cause I'm like watching the consciousness evolve in my daughter who's three now, I realized that every single thing that humanity does comes down to putting one thing on top of another. <laughs> like you can't, it's kind of like, um, like Turing's, Turing's like computational theorem, you know, that reduces everything to this very simple form of computer. I think all human um, effort can be boiled down to putting one thing on top of another, you know, a pencil on top of a paper or, you know, rock on top of this or silicon on top of gallium or, you know, everything is just putting one thing on top of another. Okay. Interesting. So, so you've been able to boil down the essence yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> down yeah. to this simple act of putting something on top of another thing. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. And then, uh, I was curious too, how you got into the particular, you know, form of, of spiritual practice that yeah. you're doing now. So, so I was a Christian scientist, um, until my like twenties, I used to sneak off. Like I went to Brown in Rhode Island and atheism was kind of a given to basically everybody. So I'd sneak off to a Christian science Sunday school because I just couldn't live without it. Um, to be honest, even though I never joined the church because there's just weird tenets like, you know, they believe you know, that you don't have to get sick. Um, but I noticed that everybody dies, right? It's really, really obvious. So why do all these Christian scientists die? And it, it just seemed like, even if people can heal themselves, which I do believe they can, and maybe Jesus could heal people. Why would you be good at it? Why would anybody be particularly good at it? If you just join the Christian science church or something. Um, so I was really 
um, I finally kind of abandoned Christian scientists about Christian science about 25 or so. And I had a very like barren period for five or six years where I just really, really, really wanted another form of spirituality, but had no, no idea what it could be. Cause I'm, I'm super into science, you know? So I, I understand like what, you know, the generally accepted scientific beliefs of our time and, and really accept them. Um, and so what happened was my brother became a, a Buddhist. He, he, and my brother is like a radical skate punk. He's an amazingly powerful, aggressive person. He's a photojournalist now. And um, he married a Chinese woman and they went to China and Tibet for their honeymoon. And my brother got super sick, like close to death, like couldn't even with some bad yak butter tea, you know. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then he, he also was like looking at all this tantric artwork and somehow the things matched together and made a very powerful impression on him. And when he came back, he just, he had promised himself, if I get better, I'm going to look into spirituality. And he studied it. He's, he works at Harvard now. And he studied every form of spirituality but like a lot of people who study Buddhism, once you study it, it's kind of hard not to, it's kind of like studying food or something like that. You know, you, you need to taste it. Right. So he got into it and he's so funny. He was always telling me very, very funny stories about the lamas and sending me tons of books by the Dalai Lama. And to be honest, I didn't understand them. I, there, some of them are sitting on these book, these bookshelves, like Tibetan Buddhism is very complicated actually. Um, and it's very complicated to understand just one part of it without like the 15 interconnecting other parts. So, but, um, I kind of reached a point when I turned 30, like, um, I still had a lot of like anxiety and frustration despite having really nice, you know, circum circumstances around me. And I thought, well, I really need something. Um, so I started reading his books in depth. Thich Nhat Hanh was the one that really connected. Like he's very, very sneaky the way he writes, like he sneaks in like the deepest ideas of Buddhism into extremely simple, like colloquial language. Mm. Um, and he gets you meditating on emptiness just by like, you know, um, he tricks you into it. So, <laughs> but what, but the deepest thing that happened is that the, the Dalai Lama was coming to Los Angeles in, in 2000. Um, and I invited my brother. I knew my brother would love it. And at the time, I was a very patient person. I think I've become less patient, unfortunately. But at the time, I was like, I could sit through anything. You know, I'll go with my brother. We'll have a good time in L.A., you know, just a, you know, road trip. Um, so we went, and the instant I saw the Dalai Lama, it was like seeing Jesus. It was just like this glowing being, and I was just crying, and I just thought, I want to be like this person. That's it. That's it. Like, I didn't believe in past and future lives or all this other weird stuff, but I just said... I, whatever he's doing, I want to do exactly that. However weird, however complicated, I just want to follow his path and have him be my teacher. So I took kind of refuge there. I mean, not, you know, face to face, but in a giant arena, you know, I was, you know, but in my heart, I was thinking, this is the path I want to follow. And then there was tons of karma involved because my brother's teacher was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Geshe Sulga, an amazing Tibetan Buddhist teacher who died a couple of years ago. And then it turned out his best buddy, Geshe Suga's best buddy is Geshe Dakpa, who teaches here in San Francisco. So I found this center right there. They connected me and said, oh, we have you know, the same, same, it was all through the FPMT 
which is um, this this Galupa, one of the Galupa strains with Lama Zopa Rinpoche as the spiritual leader. Um, so I started studying here and totally, I just did not get it. They were awful translations, but but just certain experiences were so powerful for me that it made me want to stick with it. Like the first time I read the Heart Sutra, you know, it was just like such an overwhelmingly powerful experience of like, wow, this is saying something very deep about the nature of reality. I don't fully understand it. I didn't totally understand it, but I felt it so powerfully in my heart. And um, so that, that emotional connection helped me stick through like literally thousands of hours of teaching. You know, Galukpa is like, Mm -hmm. I'll study. (laughs) Um, So literally thousands of hours of teachings over like eight, eight or so like first years. And, um, and also a lot of, um, you know, then retreats with another teacher named Venerable Rene Fusi, who teaches at the Vajrapani Institute. He was the, um, the spiritual um, director there for resident teacher for eight years. So that's how I found my, found my path is mostly through my brother and then mm. the Dalai Lama and Geshe Dakpa and Venerable Rene, mm. many others. So I think what's so interesting about what you just said is, the, I mean, to use a religious term, the conversion experience, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the way in which you kind of going into this thing and then seeing the Dalai Lama and having this kind of, kind of unexplainable yeah. in some sense response. Yeah. Um, and then also the same with the Heart Sutra, you know, just like yeah. reading this thing, and like, whoa, this is communicating <laughs> something. I don't yeah. quite understand yeah. it. Like, I don't quite understand why I'm having this reaction to this person. Yeah. So, and, and then on top of that, and then all the practice and study. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And then the thing is, my teachers were so gentle too. Like, you know, Geshe Dakpa said, you know, you meditate for three minutes a day, you know, five minutes a day, that's fine. And I did that for like three years. Like for the first three years, I meditated like three minutes, five minutes, you know, a little bit in the morning, a little bit of purification at night. But the thing is, that's like the slow, the slow way of, of learning creates a, a like an unbreakable habit. You know, it's if you go in and start trying to meditate like an hour a day uh, right away, it's very very hard to take and and hard to hard to continue. But if you just add like a few seconds every day, um, so that was really. But you know, that's what these these teachers are. They're they know the best instructions for you personally. They give you, you know, direct instructions that help your mind. And you and you sort of pointed out too, like that there were aspects of what you're learning that were bad translations. Or like, <laughs> oh, so awful. <laughs> so awful, yeah. I mean, and this is part of the problem, I guess, of, of any time yeah. uh, a tradition that's like been developed in one yeah. culture and time period and, yeah. you know, it like, enters into a new one. You know, we, we have to also kind of like <laughs> yeah. figure all this out. Yeah. Um, has that process been challenging as well? Um, it has, but the thing is, I was so grateful for, because I studied computer science and got a master's, and it felt, to me, it felt just the same, because I remember being thrown into it, because I was so, I, I hate introductory level classes, you know? So I found this computer graphics lab when I was in, like, the first year I was in college, and I just went to it, I was like, this is what I want to do, and it was all, like, graduate level stuff on big workstations. But the guy who ran the lab, Andy Van Dam, was totally egalitarian. Like he had been in a concentration camp when he was a kid and he was just like, you know, all doors are open. Um, so he's like, fine, no problem. The first day I was here, he was like, go to this lecture. So I go to this lecture. It's like some 
like a thesis defense, like a graduate thesis defense, an insanely obscure topic. And I must have understood 1%. But I had a lot of confidence from the way my parents raised me. And I was just like, oh, cool, I understood 1%, you know? So then, like, I felt like Buddhism was just the same. It was the same thing sitting through these lectures, like, fine, I understood 1%. Great, it will gradually be 2%, 3%. It's, it's no worse than college and way more valuable <laughs> information. So, um, but, you know, I remember, like, the first class was on, like, the 12 links, which is, like, such a difficult thing to understand, I think. Like, it took me probably like nine years to even like have them memorized and, and but then to even be able to talk and think about it in a way that was an experience and not just like, you know, words and ideas. But, you know, it was worth it. I must have studied it like 12 times and then finally, you know, you get something. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, it seems like maybe more than others um, that I've been exposed to, the the rich panoply of you know deities mm. and the metaphysics and the you know and the world the universe yeah. really um is so integral and integrated with the teachings and the practices yeah um and in that sense it's also you know it's it's quite a different universe than yeah. the scientific western universe yeah. I mean, in many ways well what it what it is 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 art right like the thing is our people have become so painfully literal. Like this is probably the short, the typical shortcoming of a scientist or an engineer is like a completely literal view of the world. And there are tons of exceptions, obviously. But here's like an example. Many people now walk into the Sistine Chapel. They look up at this picture and they're like, oh, I didn't know God looked like that. <laughs> you know, there's this guy with the beard. Uh, and they're like, that's what God looks like. I'll tell you with 100% certainty, people, you know, more than 100 or 150 years ago did not think that way. They did not have this literal view of the world. They understood completely that that is a symbol. It's just the way the human mind works is that we are embodied. The, our body is our most prized possession. And when we see other bodies, it's the most powerful way to communicate. So what artists have done throughout history is to use bodies to convey ideas. And that's exactly what Tibetan Buddhism does. It takes all these bodies, really cool ones with like a thousand arms or, or really violent, really sexual, like all the strongest aspects of what it means to have a body, and then channels that energy into the most purified, positive form of like purifying some human qualities or sentient being qualities like um, compassion or love or wisdom or power or healing, you know, medicine Buddha is healing, like Vajrapani would be like power, Avalokiteshvara is the compassion. Um, and it and it works and it's it's not literal, you know, and and the, there's some bad publicity in the Old Testament, you know, what they say like about cat, you know, the, the graven images and stuff. That's just publicity, you know, to kind of turn you off to um uh you know, the images of other religions, but then Christianity also used the bodies um, to convey the ideas of spirituality. So, so yeah, that's, um, that's one way of looking at it. The thing is, there are many layers in Tibetan Buddhism, and there's one layer where maybe those beings actually exist. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I think the layer where that's, that's accessible to everyone is as a, is as a symbol. So uh, one, one last kind of 
question to kind of bring, bring these two worlds even further into contact. Have you found since you started the Tibetan practice and that path, in what ways have you found it kind of interfacing with and changing your work as an artist? Mm. A couple different ways. I mean, one was it kind of, I think a lot of what I was doing was subconscious, you know, in, in what I was trying to do with art. And then learning Buddhism gave me a, like a language to explain better. So I think I realized, you know, once I learned about emptiness, the idea of emptiness especially, that that was essentially the core idea that fascinated me in, in my own art, is in everything I make, trying to convey an, an understanding of the world as interconnected and interdependent. You know, that, that like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you're only made of non-you elements. <laughs> you know, your whole body is things you, you know, breathe and ate and tiny bits of your parents. And then also your mind, every single thing, like we were saying about Steve Jobs, every single thing, every word we speak, we didn't invent today. <laughs> uh, all the ideas came from other people's and we're just, you know, remixing them. Conference. So, um, yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big way, way in which, yeah. you know, to have that, um, maybe conception, but also a deepening experience yeah. of that informing. Yeah. yeah. And then, work. So, right. And so then once I had once now, then once I could kind of name that, then I could start of start to use like emptiness more as a, as a, as a real tool and to like dial it up or dial it down in, in different works of art. But that's the main reason I make interactive art is, is that because everything is, is this transaction. Like when you're looking at a painting, you only see a painting in your mind. You don't see a painting in the world. But very few people are aware of that like interactivity with the ordinary world. But if you make a work of art that you actually have to touch, move, breathe, whatever, um, then it be, I think it becomes much more obvious to the viewer that they're a co-creator of the experience. Um, so that's my main interest in interactivity. It's also closer to nature and the way the universe works. It, it's a little artificial to like separate things, especially the way we sell art. Like we make art so much the other, you know, like I, I went into a high school once and uh, was talking about art. And one of the ways you warm up the kids is you got to ask them a lot of questions, right? So we asked the kids, uh, what is sculpture? And one kid raised his hand and he said, it's something you could touch if the guards would let you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah. I was like, that's the best definition of sculpture. And it also shows you like the problem with art. Yeah. So that's why I like to make interactive artists to like break down those barriers. Um, so mostly about emptiness. Like I, my mind tends more towards the like, the, the kind of like, you know, intellectual, like immaterial, um, and then a little bit the compassion. I mean, like, I'm not a mean person or anything, but um, but in terms of like how it affects my the art, um, that motivation is really important. You know, you have like a motivation and a dedication of everything you do in in the Tibetan Buddhism. So mm -hmm. I really try to do that. Like like before you give a lecture, um, there's different ways to prepare for a lecture. And like if you're really lazy, a really lazy way to prepare is to just think, may this lecture benefit me. <laughs> Because then you don't really have to prepare as much. <laughs> but people get very anxious. Like I often give this advice to people who have to give a public talk: is like just relax more and think. Just think about the audience that you're there to benefit them. And then, because a lot of anxiety you just thinks because you're worried about your own reputation. And sure. Am I going to embarrass myself? <laughs> yeah. The the sort of yeah. self self referentiality yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. That's really helpful. And uh, there's one other 
kind of thing I wanted to pull out from what he said that you're describing emptiness as the sort of like the remixing. Of yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's funny because in my sort of early practice, the way I understood, you know, emptiness was more as um, the way that all form is passing away yeah, simultaneously. Yeah. And then this other understanding or this other dimension of emptiness of like every, the interconnectivity yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to highlight that because it's in, in some sense, there, there seem to be these different dimensions yeah. of emptiness. Yeah. Well, Sangye Kadro, um, who also known as Kathleen McDonald, um, she really clarified it for me when I was studying with her. And, you know, she says very clearly there's emptiness. It's can be broken into one way of understanding it is there's three things. There's the mind. Uh, there are parts, you know, nothing is, is whole on its own. Everything's made out of parts. And then all of those parts have causes. So that's like one really simple formula for understanding everything is like the mind looks at a collection of parts that are otherwise, you know, you know, all your parts will dissipate, you know, and they're indistinct uh, and also subdivisible. And then there are causes that brought them together, both like material, like physics causes, and also like mental or potentially spiritual causes. And then my mind sort of projects onto that, that active continuum that isn't whole, of an artificial wholeness, you know, typically with a word. <laughs> Vincent. Emptiness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, emptiness too. That's, see, that's the thing is that that last level is, I think, the one that really, really trips you up. Like for me, like reifying emptiness itself was is something like for years and years. Not like I've really made any realizations, but sometimes you know, you a door opens and then closes again. Um, but to realize like the emptiness of emptiness, that like the word itself, the idea itself, like it's also like self-destroying, self self-creating. Um, it was the same thing with the twelve links, you know, because the the twelve links, the the first one is like. Um, the the mind, like the con the, the consciousness, and I would kind of reify that um, ignorance, right? So ignorance, really ignorance occurring in the mind, and I was really stuck on that because I would like rewind everything to ignorance, like ignorance is like the creator of everything else um, in this universe. And then, like, I asked my teacher, Renee, and he really helped us to, to, to decimate that. He's like, no, ignorance is just, like, moments of consciousness that are containing this concept, this changing concept of ignorance in your mind, you know? So, and that helps so much, like, that one last step in the 12 links to, like, dissolve the ignorance itself and realize it's this, uh, it's empty and, and changing. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. 
For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.